Our scripture is Mark chapter 11. Uh, when our associate read it, I think he read from Matthew. I told you it was in Matthew, but he read in, in Mark chapter 11. So I, I apologize for... I began to think, well, maybe that's uh, a companion um, story of the, the, the triumphant entry of our Lord. And then I thought, well, Lord, you want us to hear Matthew chapter 11 read this morning. Wherever you read the Word of God, it's quite sufficient, isn't it? It'll do exactly that. But our text is Matt, Mark <laughs> chapter <laughs> 11. Are we all on the same page? <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Mark chapter 11. And we'll begin there in just a moment. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word today. The half-sisters are coming to sing for us, Angela Bueller and Shauna Smith. Let's ask the Lord to bless them as well. And our gracious Heavenly Father, this is our portion this morning. And we come as your children to your table where all good things are spread. Now, Lord, may we not just come to taste the dainties and to sip and to kind of graze, but may we come hungry, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. May we, like the Berean believers, so desperately search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. You've told us to search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and you are life. You are the Word made flesh, and we come and ask your Spirit to interpret these things for us today. Give us eyes to see, believing hearts, Lord, for that one who may know these things but has not experienced them savingly, we pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work that He alone can do and open the eyes and, and cause the chains of sin to fall and for Christ to be seen in all of His graciousness and glory as the only Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Compared to the extravagant processions and parades of the Caesars and the winning generals and famous people down through the ages, the entrance of our Lord into Jerusalem the week before he died seems quite insignificant. It was actually a parade of poverty, a very poor man with a very few poor followers. Had a Roman general been in Jerusalem that Sunday, had he stepped out of a building that moment and witnessed the spectacle of Jesus coming into the holy city, he would no doubt have asked someone, what is this? What's going on? If they had replied, that man on the donkey is the purported Messiah of the Jews. And this is his triumphal entry into the royal city, to the holy city. The Roman would have bowed over in laughter. This is what? You should see in Rome when a victorious general comes home. The triumph is the highest honor he can give. In fact, that's what they would call it, the triumph. And why, when he receives a triumph, he enters Rome in a chariot drawn by four horses and proceeds down the sacred way to the capital. He carries a scepter and wears a laurel crown. All the senators walk at the head of his procession. Behind them come heralding trumpeters in carriages loaded down with the spoils of war. What a sight it is. Behind the treasures walk the oxen that will be sacrificed at the religious ceremonies. And then there comes a parade of all the captives in their chains. And then comes the general 
After all of that spectacle, the general and his children and his friends in this entourage, the general's soldiers bring up the rear of the procession, and you can't believe the cheering and the shouting and the singing as they march through the streets as the people are lined up to cheer them on their way. And if it is a triumph for a naval commander, well, that's something altogether different. The prows of the ships are carried through the streets before the, 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 the captain, the naval commander, and the other nautical trophies are carried through the streets in a triumphant show. I have seen, he would say, a triumph for the Caesar last for three days when he returned victorious over Gaul. You've never seen anything like it in all your life. This, my friend, is not a triumphal entry. To a Roman, this entry of Jesus would have looked poor and pitiful and beggarly. But the Lord Jesus didn't intend it for it to be triumphal. When he rode into Jerusalem, it was marking a crisis in his life in ministry. A life that was filled with crises. It, it marked a change in his way of doing things, even though there's just a week left on his time on earth. Before this, he, he slipped into the city quietly when he would come into Jerusalem. There were no public displays or, or purposefully drawing attention to himself, but this Sunday it is different. Isaiah 42 verse 2 says that he would not cry or strive or cause his voice to be heard in the street. Even after he performed a miracle, he would often tell the person upon whom it was performed to keep it quiet, to be silent about it, not to spread it. But now, on this day, he comes openly, publicly. He, he demands attention by what others would call a spectacle, by his entrance. He is forcing the issue upon his people. For one brief moment, Israel must consider, who is this man? What are his claims? If he is who he says he is, if his claims are real, he is Messiah. If not, he is an imposter. But now is the hour, this is the time, this is the day you must choose. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is always with that determined urgency. Now is the time. This is today. You must choose. John records that the Pharisees here say, the world is gone mad after him. Jerusalem is stirred by his entrance. And so he comes riding on a donkey. Now to us, in our mind, that is a strange sight in and of itself, but this is the last week of his earthly life. He is just a, with a few Galileans, peasants, gathering around him. But the impressive thing is, the important thing, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is offering himself publicly. Actually, when we examine all the gospel writers' accounts, we learn that Jesus entered Jerusalem on three consecutive days. He came the first time, and my message, the points of my message will be quite simple. They will outline the, the person work of Jesus Christ and the three entrances that he entered Jerusalem. He came the first time on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. And I want us to see that Jesus came as king, he came as priest, and he came as prophet. 
the three offices of our Lord, prophet, priest, and king. First of all, I want us to notice in verse 11 that he came as king, and Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around about all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. The little donkey was an animal that kings rode in that day. It was a sign of royalty. Now, in our mindset, that is not a royal animal, but it was in that day. The horse was the animal of war, but the donkey was the animal who was associated with royalty and with the king. The little donkey was the animal that kings rode when they were at peace, when their nations were at peace, and it was a symbol that all is well. The king is ruling, and uh, we are at peace with our enemies. It was a royal animal. In Judges 10, we see a judge who had uh, 30 sons, and he got all of them donkeys to ride on. That would like be buying them all Cadillac Escalades, SUVs, or some, some fancy thing. They all had uh, this, the symbol of royalty. Riding a donkey did not denote meekness. This is a fulfillment of everything our Lord did. It was an exact fulfillment of prophecy. And you need to know the connection with the donkey and our Lord riding into Jerusalem that day is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where the scripture says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a coat, the foal of an ass. And anyone who knew scripture should have known that scripture was being fulfilled before them. He is the king. He is the just one. He is the savior. Behold your king. He just looked around. The money changers were not there because this was the the Sabbath day. Business was not going on in the temple in that regard. He just looked around on this Saturday, the Sabbath, when he came. He looked around and he left. His action was one of rejection. He came as the king, and he was rejected as the king. The scripture says he came into his own, the house of Israel, and his own received him not. Then when he came on Sunday, what we refer to as Palm Sunday, the first day of the week, the money changers were there. The clanging of the money, the shout of the people, the the noise of the animals was all going on in the court of the Gentiles. And there our Lord in his power and his might, he cleanses the temple at that time. We see in verse 15. And when they came to Jerusalem, Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Matthew's record says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast them all out that sold and bought in the temple. And he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats that sold doves. The Lord Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for sin, regarded both the merchants and the customers guilty of desecrating the temple. Roman coins were not acceptable by the Jews, and so... If a person came and religion and Jews, the Jews at that time had devolved into just works and all the, the truths behind the sacrifices were long ago lost. And uh, if they didn't have an animal, they'd buy an animal, but they couldn't use Roman money. They'd have to exchange the money. And of course, the money changers made a, a rate of exchange on the money. 
It was all just business. Both the merchants selling the sacrifices and the money changers were charging expensive rates for changing the money that could be used in temple worship. And the whole place took on an atmosphere of a robber's cave, a thieves' hideout. This all took place in the court of Gentiles. A large area covered several acres there on on the Temple Mount. And you can imagine it was like a flea market of animals and, and, and all that going on. He came as a king, a king riding on a donkey, king of kings, Lord of lords is he, we sing. And yet they did not receive him as Messiah. Matthew's gospel tells us that after he cleansed the temple, many came to him blind and lame and he healed them, showing that he was indeed God, doing what no one but God could do. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, instead of ascribing them to the work of God, and and the the children, the Bible talks about children. Actually, these were the young boys, 12 years of age, preparing for their bar mitzvah, who were celebrating their first Passover. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. They knew the scripture. They knew that this was the promised one. They were ascribing to him the royal lineage of David, rightful ruler to an heir to David's throne. The religious leaders came to him not getting it at all, indignant that he did not correct them for their, their error in calling him king. Correct them, tell them that they're wrong. They said, do you not hear what they're saying? They're calling you the Messiah. And Jesus quoted scripture as his answer which he was most often he most often did he quoted psalm 8 verse 2 out of the mouths of babes and sucklings nursing infants hast thou ordained strength or perfected praise that was his answer the 12 year old boys could easily recognize this had to be the messiah the son of god the king of kings when the chief priests and the theologians and and the scribes who who spent their days copying the scriptures and the the writings of the rabbis absolutely missed it they did not and would not receive the truth that's always the way when the gospel comes it always comes with urgency now is the time today is the day and it comes with the decision upon the one who hears it You must receive the truth that you hear. Is this Jesus Christ that I'm preaching about today? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior? And if so, where do you stand in light of that fact? He came as king. Look there in verse 2. He said to them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you be entered... Into it you shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. Verse 3, the Lord hath need of him. If anyone asks them, why are you taking it? Just say, the Lord hath need of him and he will send him hither. I've always thought about the disciples who had that task to do. And I, I have often, as a subordinate, as an associate here, I've often been asked to do, often been asked to do things that I've wondered how it was going to be received when I would go and carry out this, this piece of business. I remember as a boy, my mother would send me on some errand in the neighborhood, and she'd say, go to Miss, Miss Bryant's over there and ask her. So, and the request would be so 
demanding or it would be in such a way I would think, what's Miss Bryant going to say about this? But I didn't have the wisdom as a little boy that my mother knew the circumstance. Perhaps she'd already talked to Miss Bryant. She, she knew how she would respond. And here our Lord is sending his disciples on an errand, go to a certain house, ask for the colt, and if they take the colt, untie him and lose him and bring him. That's kind of a, you just go to somebody's house and start bringing their livestock. You, you know, you wonder, there are all kinds of questions there. And he said, just tell them the Lord hath need of it. Isn't that amazing? The Lord hath need of it. How do, you, how do you know that the person is going to receive the request, but the Lord knows all things? This is the creator of the universe. He knows the hearts and minds of all men. He sent them to a house that he knew would be favorable to their requests. And that they would say, yes, you, I wonder whose house it was. And there are all kinds of events like this in Scripture, the people just obeying what they knew and giving what they had. And the house that was called upon to give up their animal for, their, for the Lord to ride on that day. I wonder if a cup of cold water given in my name will not go unnoticed in the day of judgment. What about the royal animal that the Lord would ride upon? They can trust his word, and you can too. When there's a command in the scripture that seems to go against your grain, it goes against your reasoning. Don't worry about that. You, you worry about it and you put your effort into obeying what the Lord has commanded. He'll work out all the, the ends. of the, He works on both ends of the line. Have you, have you noticed that, how the Lord does? He's always working on you and on the other one as well. They can obey his command and you can as well. Even when uncertain about the outcome. When you come to Christ and salvation wondering how he who is perfect could overlook your sin or deal with your sin or cleanse you from unrighteousness and give you the very righteousness of Christ. All those wonderful claims of the gospel. We must come to the place where we trust the Lord and rest our case with him, knowing that he does all things well. He had once told them, remember when he told them to, 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 uh, to look in a certain fish's mouth and find the exact amount of money they needed to pay for their taxes. He knows those things. He knows where everything is. In an amazing way, that had to have been absolutely astounding to the disciples to, to open that certain fish's mouth and to have the, the amount of money that they needed to pay the taxes. At the marriage of Cana, he told them to fill some clay water pots to the brim. And when they obeyed him, they found out they had the sweetest wine of all. Why? He's the king. He has all the facts. He has all the resources. All power is given to him in heaven and earth. His word can be trusted. When it gives a command, we can obey it implicitly without fear of the ramifications of it because he does all things well. All excuses are answered. All doubts are settled in him. He knoweth the way that I take, as Job says. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. What he is asking to us to do today that may seem unreasonable, is perfectly reasonable when you put it in the hands of the Lord. But not only do we see him here as king with power and might, we see him here as, for a moment, as priest. Look there again in verse 11. He entered into the Jerusalem, into the temple, and when he had looked around about all, him all things, now the eventide was come, he went out into Bethany. He came in, he looked at how everything was set up, and then he, he left. And then we see in verse 15, when he came back, he cast them out of the, that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables. 
And then in verse 16, he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, It is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, of all the nations a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. What a remarkable thing that our Lord does here. Now, it's one of the most amazing events in his earthly ministry. Remember that the shadow of the cross is already beginning to fall across him. His moments are numbered and Calvary is there. He knows that's where he will be and that's where he's headed. Just hours from Gethsemane in the fake trial and the cruelties of the crucifixion that he will endure for our sin and for our behalf. This is the only action that our Lord performs as priest when he was here on earth. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear that he was not a priest after the the earthly lineage of of the priesthood in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. No priest dared to cleanse the temple, but he did when he came to the temple on that Palm Sunday. They had corrupted the sacrificial system. They'd all but, but blinded the people's eyes to the truths behind the turtle doves and the, the animals, the, the lambs that they were selling that day. It was money. It was a rigmarole. It all had devolved into a, a rigmarole of religion. The form was there, but the meaning behind it was gone. And true salvation had not been explained and could not be seen. The kind of salvation that Abraham, their father, had, had now all devolved into works. They were quick to let him know and and anyone else know, we are the children of Abraham when he brought to them his claims as Messiah. What was their answer? We're the seed of Abraham. In other words, we're all right. We'll go to heaven because of our, our race, because of our nationality. But the true children of Abraham, the scripture tells us, are spiritual, not physical. Romans 4 verse 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. For a moment, though, we see him acting as a priest, cleansing the temple. He came to show the way of salvation. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Did he not say, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. Some listening to me have tried to get in by some other way, some other door. One time, a a radio listener invited my wife and and our family to, to eat with them. And uh, I must say, I had never been to a house like this before that time, and probably not since then. It was one of those houses way out uh, in, the, in the country. But when you came to the property, it was an amazing sight. It was on over 100 acres of land. And when you drove up to the approach, the house was built in such a way, you couldn't tell if you were at the front of the house or the back of the house. Now, I'll tell you this morning, if you came up to the back of my house, you'd know you were at the back of the house and not the front. And I'd venture to say I could be able to tell that about yours. But this house looked the same from the back as it did from the front. It was absolutely palatial. And when you went into the house, it was one of those, you know, you, you were like, I know we look like country come to town. Your, your jaw was dropped, and, you know, everywhere you turned was something more unusual. You could roller skate in the kitchen. The kitchen was absolutely just 
enormous, vast, and I could go on and on. You, you, you couldn't tell, you know, where, what door was the door, but, but Jesus Christ made it very clear, I am the door, and you must come in this way. Some have tried to get in through a back door. It's embarrassing when you come to the wrong door and people aren't expecting you at that door. But I want you to know this morning that the door of salvation is clearly marked, so no one should miss it. Christ is the door. The door and the Lord are one and the same. He is preparing the way, clearing out the debris. He's done all things. He's made all things ready. He's made it so clear. The way to salvation should not be missed. All that would hinder true salvation and all that men would lay in the way of getting to Christ is cleared away by his person and work. Some of you need to have the clutter of tradition and religion and false teaching or insufficient teaching cleared away so that the door could clearly be seen. How sad it is for the door to be blocked and for the ship to be sinking and the way should be clearly marked, but it's cluttered up by debris. So often as it is to the way of salvation, people will come to religious surfaces, especially this time of the year, and the rigmarole and all will overshadow and all but, but block the way to Christ. And it's simply this. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the Savior. He is the door. You must go to Him and through Him. That's the simple plan of the gospel. Their eyes were blinded. They could not see that the true priest was before him and that he indeed had the authority to do what he was doing. The priest and the sacrifice were all in one. Isaac couldn't see the sacrifice the day that his father was offering him when he saw the altar and the wood and he said, Where is the lamb? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And he did. Two holidays that, and I shudder to call them that, two times of the year that commemorate the personal work of our Lord Jesus Christ at Christmas and at Easter have become so cluttered with junk, so cluttered with stuff and even religious rigmarole that the Savior is rarely seen. Why he came who he is, what he did, these times have become so commercialized and so, in in many times, even by the the church, so covered up. Where is the Savior? Where is the Savior? John the Baptist and a few minority number saw him and recognized who he was. Remember when John saw him coming, what he said is still true this morning. Behold, See him. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Not only do we see him as king and as priest, we lastly see him as prophet. He came back on Monday, the third entry into the holy city, and on the way he cursed the fig tree there in verses 12 through 14. We often may think that 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 event is incongruous with the other events here. But our Lord curses the fig tree. Notice that on this day he is teaching. He is still teaching. Even as he's headed to the cross, 
If it were our last week on earth and we knew how we were going to die, we may lay aside our duties and say, well, I've done so much. I've told you everything. I'm, not, I'm just going to rest. I'm just going to prepare myself. We might not be in that teaching mode, but our Lord will not lose a single opportunity to instruct his disciples, which will become the pillars of the church, the apostles that would lay the foundation of the church. He is the word made flesh who dwelt among us. He has the answer to every question And he is the answer to every question. He was speaking for God. He was God's prophet. A prophet tells what God tells them to tell his people. I have a quote on my desk that I see every time, every time before I come out to this pulpit, it is the preacher's humble task to tell God's people what he has said. And that's what a prophet is to do. He couldn't mix in what he wanted in with it. He must tell the truth, the prophecy that God had given him. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He embodied all prophetic truth. He was the fulfillment of all the Bible. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelled and was complete in him. The writer of the Hebrews tells us he was the express image of God, the signet ring and the wax, who God is, what God is, Jesus Christ is. And while there's many mysteries about the Godhead... God is spirit. We cannot be seen, but we can see his son. And the son is the father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I and my father are one. He met every objection. He silenced the enemy. He was the voice of God. He said, he that has seen me has seen the father in John 14, 9. His final appearance before the nation was in his threefold office, his prophet priest, and king. Actually, I think it's wrong to call this the triumphal entry. From a human perspective, we might, like the Roman, the fictional Roman I was talking about just a few moments ago, what is triumphant about this entry? And in fact, he's not entering at all. It should be called the triumphal exit. He's working his way out of the city, outside the camp, As the scapegoat for sin, the Old Testament, the priest would lay his hand on a scapegoat and transfer symbolically the sins of the people to the goat and let him out into the wilderness. He's going to suffer outside the camp a criminal's death, an undeserved death. He wasn't arranging to take up residence in Jerusalem in the high priest's house or in some palatial place there in Jerusalem. He's not going to reign as king or to teach as a prophet there. He sent his disciples ahead to arrange a simple room to eat the Passover. But he didn't send them to rent an apartment, did he? Or a house or, or a mansion. He wasn't preparing for his reign just now. He was Preparing for his passion, his suffering, his death, his passing through the streets with a mutilated back and a cross upon it. The torments that he would endure for our sin. He's not looking for a throne, which is rightfully his, but he's looking for a tomb. This is just a minor segment of the trip which began in eternity past, at the foreordination and council of God, where the Godhead sat in absolute majesty and completeness and harmony. 
All the edicts and the decrees of God were established and flowed from that time and eternity past. When the Lamb of God, the Bible tells us, was slain when? Not at Calvary. He was slain first in the mind of the plan of God in eternity past. Slain from before the foundations of the world. Extends from eternity past to eternity future. Isaiah 57 verse 15 calls him the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Moses wrote in Psalm 90 verse 2, even from everlasting, as far away as you can go that way, to everlasting, thou art God. The church calls it the triumphal entry, but actually it is a triumphal exit. The crowds crying, Hosanna, the same voices will in a few days cry, Crucify him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We will not have this man to reign over us. When you leave the gospel of Jesus Christ unanswered in your heart and in your soul, you are saying, whether you say it outwardly with that crowd or not, when you leave unbowed before the the Christ, the door, when you refuse to go in through the only door When you turn your prideful heart away from Christ, the only Savior, you join in your voice with that crowd. We will not have this. I will not have this man to reign over me. There's a painting, an old master painting that shows a little donkey chewing on some palm fronds and behind him. On a hill are are three crosses. That tells the story, doesn't it? From eternity past, he had set his face to Jerusalem and to that hill, that rocky outcropping of a hill outside the city to die. We all know that we're going to die. We know it because it's all around us and The scriptures tell us it is appointed a man once to die, but somehow we mask it and turn ourselves away from it and put it away as one of those uncomfortable things that we just don't want to dwell on. And so we just crowd our hearts and our lives and our minds with other things. And at times we're jolted to think about it when someone near to us dies or a friend's child is lies in the the throes of death or there's been a terrible car accident or something that that we're connected with or hear about or when a beloved brother or sister dies in the church and we see the casket and all the the things about death and we realize, you know, that's going to be me one day. You know, it's, it's going to be me. But we don't live our lives with our goals. If I were to ask you to show me your 10 year goals to die is not going to be on that that list. And, and to suffer the agony and pain that, that he would. But our Lord knew from eternity past that that was what his life's work would be. When he moved, he moved in hurried steps from a prearranged program by a definite decision that he made. When he rode into Jerusalem, he had come from out of eternity. And he was riding into eternity. It was an exit rather than an entrance. The cross was there before him, but it was, even that was not his final destination. 
the borrowed tomb he would only use for three days. You don't borrow a tomb. That's as final as it gets. You don't reserve a tomb as a room to use for a short period of time. No, but if you're God, you won't need a tomb. He could say to the thief at his side, one of the most glorious statements for those who are halting between two opinions, and you've heard the claims of Christ, and you wonder if this could be, though you sin greatly, I will tell you on the authority of the gospel writers what he told that man who committed a capital crime, who turned to him in believing, repenting faith. What did he say to him? Could there be any more glorious words in all the scripture today? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Oh, what hope. What hope. One day he will return, as we've sung about this morning, as a glorious king. It's just as literal and real as his first coming was. The writings that we're reading about today, his triumphal entry or exit, however you want to call it. One day. He will come as King of kings and Lord of lords. And every eye will see him. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we will be able to sing that that hymn that Matthew Bridges wrote. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing. Of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king. Throughout all eternity. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 says. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto. But to minister. And to give his life a ransom. A payment. For many. I'm glad to report to you today that the debt that you owe to God's holiness and righteousness has been paid. I often think, what if you owe the national debt? We hear about it. Think of that, that number. What if it was personally yours? The richest person on earth couldn't pay it. You couldn't pay it in a thousand lifetimes. But what if it's so unthinkable, but your debt is far more horrible than that? You owe a debt to the creator God of the universe that you have absolutely no ability to pay. And no amount of behavior or reforming or joining or doing can change your status one iota. And so you have a problem, and I have a problem. We have a horrible problem, don't we? We're sinners condemned to die, as we sung about today. But Jesus Christ and his his sinless life and his death in our place paid a debt we owed but couldn't pay. It's paid in full. Most of our singing is about that, isn't it? We often talk about the sacrifice that was paid and our debt is paid in full and all to Him we owe. We can rejoice this morning as those that gathered in the streets who got it. It's always been just a few in comparison to the many who got it. But I will tell you this morning in my, the best way I can, Jesus Christ is the prophet, priest, and king of the scripture. He is the promised son of God. And you must come to him as you are and receive from him a pardon from your sin. This gift, this amazing gift of salvation that he has purchased and offers to you just now.
Would you bow for prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel at the Scripture before us. We marvel at what you've done on our behalf. It's such an amazing thing, and the message is so simple that we were debtors, but the debt has been paid. We, like the thief, are condemned to die, but but you've made a way for us. And if we come to you turning from our sin and looking to you alone, we too shall join you in your glorious reign. One day you will come again, not in humility, not just for a handful of people, but all the world, all who've ever lived will see you as who you are. I pray that your gospel that's been preached today will answer every question and come to every heart in the sound of my voice. May those who need to be saved come in simple faith and tell you their need and turn from their sin and trust you and you alone and receive this gracious and glorious gift of salvation. Oh, Lord, may many enter the kingdom of heaven because of this word today. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.